Segment one, insights, mimetic desire. To quote one of your interpreters, Gil Bailey, quote, desire as distinguished from animal appetite is always aroused by the desire of another. Explain. If in order to invent desire, because desire is not natural, desire is not animal, is it human? We don't know. It sometimes is human, sometimes it seems very inhuman. But how is it born? I think desire usually uh, is born out of the contemplation of someone else who is desiring and who designates to you the object is desiring as desirable. So every college student who wants to be an investment banker, obvious, they want to fly around in, the, in their own jet and yes. drive a Maserati. But how does this apply to the ancient world? Well, to the ancient world, uh, it has to apply in the same fashion. The objects are different, but the structure of desire, the triangular relationship of desire, object, model, and subject are the same. Serpent, Eve, Apple. Serpent in the mimetic theory of, the, of desire is a symbol, a, an image of uh, the mediator. In other words, the one who directs the subject towards the bad desire. The churches, you know, who know what they're talking about much better than most people think, know that example is the key to bad as well as good behavior. And this is nothing but what I call mimetic desire. So that's why the church uses the phrase the occasion of sin. Yes. Uh, now, Gil Bailey once again, the imitative nature of desire leads to conflict. It leads to conflict, and this is a, both something very obvious and which is a paradox for most people when they first realize it. If you imitate the desire of someone else, you admire that someone else, or that someone else may be your best friend. But as soon as you both desire the same object, and the objects really desirable exist only in one copy. In ones. So I shouldn't say copy because it's not a copy. It's the original. There is only one, there Helen, is only one, only one Helen of Troy. Original. Ah. And therefore they have to fight. Therefore the real, the theatrical situation par excellence is a situation of two people desiring the same object because they designate that object to each other. Once the imitated subject realizes he is imitated, this reinforces his desire. He said, I certainly selected the right object. As soon as this man saw her, he fell in love with her, like I did. Therefore, we are right. Therefore, I'm more convinced than ever that I should desire her. Therefore, he's my enemy. <laughs> All right. 
I'm I'm chuckling because as as you as we will as the audience will learn, as simple as it sounds, it explains everything in a way. Let me quote you yourself, Renee, this time. If the, this moves on to the, the, your second basic insight, the violence and mm -hmm. the sacred. If there is a normal order in societies, it must be the fruit of an anterior crisis. Explain. It must be the, the result of an anterior crisis because people polarize around objects of desire. And this can be regarded as true even for food, for shelter, for places where you can live and so forth. So you can be sure that the human population in prehistorical time gathered around the same places because they were desirable, because there was water there and so forth. And <clears throat> they were united by that same desire and they were separated because very often there was not enough of whatever was needed, water, shelter, food, and they started to fight. That's why I don't think we should say man is so bad, you know, that he would always fight with his fellow man, even when he associates, the people he associates most closely with are the people he fight most, most uh, often with. They do because they are both moving toward the same thing. And these things are never in sufficient number. Or even if they are, you tend to trust your model All right. because you admire him. So you say he's seen in the object something more than I saw, and therefore I must follow him more than ever. And this works both ways as the one who desires first is imitated in his desire, he's confirmed in that desire. But the conflictual situation is all over the place, it's coming from everywhere. All right, segment two, the scapegoating mechanism. We're now, we now have, we're talking, let's say we're, we're, in, we're in the prehistoric world, you're describing the most basic sources of conflict, mm -hmm. and now the most basic means of resolving conflict. Yeah. Because the question is, how are such conflicts resolved? They have to be resolved at least part of the time for groups of human beings to gather permanently together and so forth. So the question so is, how do, how do societies manage People imitate exist, right? each other. People imitate each other in their desire. But they also imitate each other in their dislikes, I just said. And therefore, when you have a conflict which is particularly visible and obvious and so forth, there will be a tendency for the neighbors of the people concerned to move with the stronger of the two, the most convincing of the two, and be on his side against the other one. And when you have a second one, you have a third one, a fourth one, it becomes easier and easier, and the mimetic because all this is always mimetic. You see, that's the thing you have to see. The real motor is imitation each mm -hmm. time. Imitation of friendship, imitation of desire, and imitation of conflict. So, if it is so, there should not be any human society. It should be impossible. 
Con total conflict all the time. Total conflict all the time. But if you have the total conflict, you also have a way in which this conflict is automatically, uh, what should I say, uh, cancelled and resolved. replaced, resolved by. And um, it is when people imitate no longer the choice of uh, opponent, but also what they feel about everything. And uh, they are all going to gather against the same opponent. If one really feels convinced that one of the people there is more guilty than the other one, the notion of guilt will appear in the collective uh, interplay of these people. And as soon as this happens, you know, it gathers speeds, and ultimately, one victim must be killed or driven out or otherwise uh, gotten rid of. And this is what I call this, what not I, but everybody calls the scapegoat. The word scapegoat is, uh, comes from the Bible, the Tyndale translation of the Bible in English. In most European languages, they say emissary goat, emissary victim, mm. victim who is sent out of the community or who is killed. You see, but that's when everybody agrees that there must be one who is more of a culprit than the others. Therefore, they unite against that one. And this mechanism is what underlies these myths that Frazier cataloged all yeah. around the world, not just Western, not just Greek and Roman myths, although that, of course, is where he... he and that's what he doesn't attention. see, because he excludes the West. The West is too high, too intelligent, too superior to the rest of humanity to be part. Fraser discovers only archaic or... Uh, primitive society scapegoats, and so African scapegoats. It is your belief that the pattern that underlies myths around the world of the dying and resurrected yeah. king reflects actual events in prehistoric sure. society. And we're talking about, the, the, we have to establish the, the, the scope of time we're discussing here. You're actually talking about early Homo sapiens, half a million yeah. years. Early, so yeah. this goes on for hundreds of thousands I'm, of years. I'm not and becomes ritualized in, in myth. In finding out the exact time, it's not my business. I'm a pure theoretician. You see, but I say at some point, people must have been reconciled in order to create communities, permanent communities, against not a leader directly, but a scapegoat. Mm. that they all killed together, and it united them. That's why, if you look at myth, you know, they all have the same shape. It's always a story of a man who is killed by an entire community. Let me, Oedipus, mythical king of Thebes. The plague comes to Thebes. Yeah. Oedipus discovers that years before, unwittingly, he had killed his father and mother, He's horrified. He it's blinds himself. It's a community himself. that discovers that. All right, that's what I want. So, so yeah. we know the Oedipus myth. Explain how that. What... And uh, Oedipus is killed. Therefore, the community 
gathers around Oedipus because Oedipus has solved the problem in a way of the disunity of the community by dying. After the death of Oedipus, people find that they have no more enemy and they have a moment where they say, this man divided us, but in order to reconcile us, therefore he's a God, therefore he is the one who is moving us towards some kind of new form of unity, not against him, but we should be afraid of him, but he's fundamentally good, he's a God. All right, segment three, the myth that happened. The crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, Luke chapter 23. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And the people smote their breasts. You hit the right spot there because you, you mentioned immediately what myth cannot say. Myth never see that the victim is innocent. You see. Oedipus really did kill his father and mother. He really did bear That's right. guilt. You know, and the first interpreters of the myth took it quite seriously because they saw violence as the main business of myth and therefore they believed it was a real murderer who had been uh, killed. In reality, it's an imaginary murderer, a scapegoat. But the community believed in his guilt. The community believed in his guilt. That's why the community wanted to repeat these things, thought that the God was teaching them to repeat it on new, more victims. That's why they invented sacrifice. All right. And so when in the Golden Bow, Fraser suggests that Christianity, and he has as much of a shock yeah. on late 19th century, the West, as did Darwin. Yeah, but at He's least less known now, but he's, it's still a huge that Christianity is nothing but one more myth that takes the pattern of the dying and resurrected God. And Fraser believed it, and so intellectuals to this day believe it. And you answer how? I answer very simply that uh, Fraser was perfectly right to point to the similarities between myth and Christianity. In both instances, you have a, a victim who is killed by an entire community and who becomes the God of, or who becomes, or who is, who has always been, in the case of Christ, of the community. What Fraser didn't see, which is the simplest thing of all, and should convince everybody immediately, you know, if they were honest, that Christianity is very different from mythology while being the same. It's exactly the same situation is that Christianity tells you that Christ was innocent, whereas all myths tell you the victim is guilty. The victim is a god, but gods are guilty characters. They are dangerous characters. They can be good to you through strange circumstances that are not very easy to understand, but they can also do all sorts of bad things, right. which is not the case of Christ. Simply, Christianity tells you Christ is innocent. And people don't see the, that it's the first time in the history of mankind that a myth occurs which is read not falsely, 
with the victim guilty, but with the victim innocent, sent by God himself. If God allows scapegoating to happen, it's because he wants humanity to exist and so forth. But uh, of course, Christ is very different from any other scapegoat, and he's the son of God, and uh, he um, is misunderstood when people see him as exactly the same thing as mythical heroes. He's a mythical hero, but he's innocent. Rene, why, this is the, 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 the question of soteriology, if I am pronouncing it correctly, the theologians, the theology of the cross. What changes when this innocent God-man dies on the cross? How does that affect human understanding? Why is that a saving event? Well, because if you read <clears throat> the, the mythical situation, the way I just did, you see, you can see there is something which is not purely human about it. We are offered all these victims and we uh, take them for culprits and so forth. In the case of Christianity, there are a few disciples who say, no, no, he's not guilty, who maintain to the end that he is innocent, whatever people may say about him. Therefore, they say the truth simply. They say a, a truth which is anthropological before being religious, but which is the same thing. And so Christ's death on the cross frees humankind from this yes. deep, profound, inescapable, and largely hidden cycle of the scapegoating impulse. Yes. It oh, potentially it does. It does, and Christianity asserts certainly that it does, that it's the only true religion, and that it says the truth about man and about God. But very few people take these statements seriously, as you well know. And Why? they should take them Why? literally. Why? You have said well, it several points it's, out. It's obvious once you see it, it's the yeah. simplest. Christianity is different, and yet, and, and yet they we don't, don't want it. it. They don't yeah. want it. But you, you know as much about that as I do. I mean, I, we just have to see the fact that they don't see both the they, You see, the Christians don't dare see the similarity because they are too timid. If you They're tell afraid them, that Christianity may be one may other May be myth. a myth. Therefore, they refuse to say the situation is the mythical one. But they say the truth about it and there is no more myth. Christianity destroys mythology. All right. Segment four, René Girard and the Modern World. From your most recent book, Archevé Clausewitz, to be published in this country under the title Battling to the End, quote, history, you might say, is a test for mankind, but we know very well that mankind is failing that test. Explain Mankind that. is failing that test because mankind has the truth in uh, the reality of Christianity, which is there. And uh, this truth has been there for 2,000 years. And instead of moving ahead and becoming more widespread, today it's becoming more restricted. Christianity is less and less popular every day and uh, is accused of all sorts of things 
which smell very much like a scapegoating process. <laughs> well, all right, so in, our, in the contemporary setting, we have Christopher Hitchens saying that Christianity is responsible for all kinds of evils. Yeah. It's the usual catalog. Yeah. To, I don't mean to demean Christopher's <laughs> argument. There's, he's a man of integrity, but the yes. religious warfare, on and on. And, and right. you say, no, that's not, that's not Christianity, the, it is yeah, what? But it is, uh, it is an effort to restore, if you want, the, the mythical world, which doesn't uh, perceive itself as it should. To unite by way of a common antagonism and then to do violence to the other. Mm -hmm. What we see in the, in the religious warfare, what we see in, in the communism, is a reemergence yeah. of the ancient pattern. What we see in human society as a whole, in a way people always unite around victims. But in order to unite uh, solidly, they must keep believing that these victims are guilty. And they are not. So, in other words, Christianity is the myth that reads all myth, the myth which is read and reads all myth. So people say, you're doing anthropology or you're doing mythology. And I answer no. I'm showing that to read mythology right and to have a true anthropology are one and the same thing. From battling to the end again, modern world. Personally, I have the impression that Islam has used the Bible, that is incorporated elements of the Bible, as a support to rebuild an archaic religion. While Christianity eliminates sacrifice wherever it gains a foothold, Islam seems to situate itself prior to that rejection. Yeah, Christianity, um, Islam is a big problem for Christianity because it comes after Christianity. And it is intelligent enough and religious enough in a certain sense to use aspects of Christianity that make it more credible than archaic religion. Therefore, but I think it's very important to realize that uh, it's not the same message, really. It seems to be, but it's not the same message because uh, the peace and the refusal of violence of Christianity is not there. And yet you also argue in Battling to the End that terrorism is something new and alien to the classical Islamic tradition. Yes. Where does it come Do from I? and what's the correct way for us to think about it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... This is television. Make up an answer. Yeah. <laughs> No, I don't want to make up an answer. No, this not. It's too serious a question, you know, because you're talking about millions and millions of people. Of course. Uh, in some and way... And these people are honest. Now, as a Christian, I would say they are potential Christians. We want to convert each other, and it's a normal thing to do. Mm -hmm. We want all the Muslims to become Christians, just as the Muslims want all the Christians to become Muslim. Now, in battling to the end, you argue that the modern world finds itself in a peculiar predicament. The archaic pattern no longer works because no longer it's been works. exposed. It's impossible to be a genuine pagan. After the Christian event, you just can't go back. It has happened. So it no longer works. At the same time, 
that is to say, it no longer is genuinely unifying, it no longer is ritualized in myths that people at least half believe. And at the same time, we have the march of technology making the scapegoating mechanism more and more dangerous. Yes, we have the, or oh, we might simply say that uh, man has become capable of destroying his own world for good, and to make it uh, uh, unable to support life, you know, to we destroy have... the atmosphere, to... I, I take very seriously... Today we live a very strange period because the apocalyptic texts, the great apocalyptic texts for me are not the texts which are entitled Apocalypse of John in the... They are the texts which are at the end of the... The Gospels. Of the, of the Synoptic Gospels, uh, especially uh, uh, Luke and... Uh, the, reading at, the reading last Sunday. Reading. The end of the world will That's come. That's right. The end of the world will come, but yeah. it is not for in you the, to know the time. In the old days, you know, I remember before the invention of the atom bomb, priests in church always talked about this apocalyptic text on the last day of the year, of the liturgical year, which was the last day of the time after Pentecost, which was a week ago, and the first day of the Advent, which was an apocalyptic day too. These texts were read, yeah. And I remember the time when they were the only thing that impressed me very much in the, uh, readings at church, you know, all the, and in a way, the inspiration of my whole work is there. I have been talking about this text all the time. Well, final quotation from Battling to the End. In some way, the Gospels and Scriptures are predicting that, man, predicting that mankind will fail the test of history since they end with eschatological themes, literally the end of the world. How do you think about the present age? Is this a time of testing? Is it a time of ultimate doom? <coughs> well, it's you know, you you look, look at the apocalyptic text in the Gospel. One thing which is very characteristic is the mixture of the human and the natural. That is the reason why people consider that they are not serious scientifically and so forth and so forth. But look at the times we are living today. If there is a new hurricane in New Orleans, is it nature alone or is it nature helped by man? So to be in apocalyptic times means precisely that in my view. The time when you longer, no longer know if it is nature which is hurting you or if it is man himself mm. who is helping the apocalyptic forces. Mm. Renee, segment five, your, your personal story. You've uh, been quoted as saying that you've undergone two conversions, and the first was intellectual. The intellectual conversion occurred, I'm assuming, when you when reading The Golden Bough, you recognize that Christianity was different. Am I correct about that? Yes, but this is not necessarily a Christian. The, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's the encounter of these texts with the Gospels, you know, which uh, convinced me. And, and then when I realized precisely that it's this mixture, 
you know, there will be the sea and the roaring of the waves and so forth, and uh, men will fight men and uh, uh, city against city and so forth. It's always symmetrical, you know, like what I call the doubles, the basic uh, conflictual situation. When you realize that these two things are one. Mm. I'm looking to you for a little uh, cheer here. You've, the apocalyptic, when I was a teenage, the apocalyptic texts impressed me as well. They scared the wits out of me. Yeah. And I, in fact, I can remember hearing a country preacher sure. talking about the, he somehow or other had but the hydrogen bomb predicted look, in the book of Revelation. People but that's want not, to be scared today, all their films and so forth. The, the only paranormal fear, activities is a big hit. The only fear they refuse is a good one. The, the one that says there must be a God there who is in charge mm. and who can reward as well as punish. Do you believe, I've, I've got a question here from a viewer, Todd Jones. Does René Girard believe that there is any way to turn the tide? Yes, behaving like Christians. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, René, to conclude, would you indulge me? In concluding this interview, I would like to ask you to be my personal guide here mm -hmm. and demonstrate to me a close Girardian reading of a text. I'll give you a couple of passages and ask you to comment on it. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> and the angel came in un unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. What is that woman doing in the Christian myth? Well, that Christian is part, that uh, woman is part, is very important part, is Mary. And uh, she's the mother of the child who is Christ and who is the Son of God, who is the presence of God on this earth. Therefore, it's very important. Uh, Protestant and Catholics give various different importance to Mary and so forth. I don't think it's very important. The, the important The importance is to see that it justifies in a way history in a religious way, that history is both human and divine, and that the consequences in a way, are always uh, met manifest by God there's no, for there's the no, right reason. There's no stagecraft here. There's no melodrama. There's no, there is no uh, melodrama. The, you have a simple girl who's scared witless. That's right. All right. Chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And Joseph went up from Galilee into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And so it was that while they were there, Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. This is an odd appearance for the God, the dying and, sure. and resurrected God to be making. Well, it is the proof and the statement that uh, what is really going on on the historical plane has very little to do with the Roman Empire and what was going on 
in the world in the second century uh, AD. So we begin with, in effect, the front page of the New York Times, Caesar Augustus decree, yeah. and then the gospel immediately shows us what is important is a secret, ordinary human truth here. That's right. Taking place in a little out of the way. Yeah, but taking place only in one place, you know, being unique, being something uh, which has to be discovered, which we cannot afford to say, oh, well, okay, it's there, it's unimportant. No, it's not unimportant. It's the destiny and the duty of our life to look for the truth, which is hidden from them from the point of view of the Roman Empire. Final passage, Luke chapter 2. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, yeah. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill, toward men. Yeah. Rene, you remember the Second World War. You yeah. lived in occupied Paris. Mm -hmm. The Second World War, 50 million dead, the Holocaust, the tens of millions killed by the communists, all in your lifetime. How do you make sense of, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men? Well, the first sense to make is that uh, most men, and especially the most powerful, were not full of peace and good intentions. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> well, human life is essentially drama. And maybe one thing that churches don't emphasize enough is that uh, human beings like drama. They like to they would like to be part of an immense fight between good and evil and so forth. What these texts say is that in their own way, each one of them is part of that struggle, you know, which I think is very important and very hopeful. The ordinary Christian yes. is not going to read every word of the Girard Reader or every word of your many books. Can you sum up It's the really very unimportant. He may have insights which are more profound than mine, and uh, he, uh, he should believe and uh, he should trust that he's a very important uh, man for God and that uh, his understanding of uh, reality as a, as a religious history is, uh, is an event that rejoices God. René Girard, thank you very much. I should say Joyeux Noël. Joyeux Noël. Merry Christmas. <laughs>